In April 1985, a man named Ronnie Lee Gardner, who was facing numerous felony charges and the possibility of a death sentence, was meeting with his lawyers downtown in Salt Lake City at the Metropolitan Hall of Justice. Having escaped prison before, another opportunity for breakout presented itself. As Ronnie was led into the courthouse that morning, shackled at the waist, a female friend approached him and handed him a loaded revolver. Ronnie ran loose in the courthouse for several minutes, terrorizing bystanders with the gun. But before authorities could subdue him, he had fatally shot an innocent person in the face. Defense attorney Michael Burdell. Ronnie also shot an unarmed bailiff, Nick Kirk, in the abdomen. Join me now as we uncover the crimes committed by Ronnie Lee Gardner and the impact his murders had on loved ones and friends. We'll also take a look at Ronnie's upbringing and the extent to which traumatic emotional experiences in a brain injury may have contributed to the development of his violent personality. We'll also reveal the unusual choice Ronnie made regarding how he would face his death sentence. central Utah in the summer, the air can be sweet. Breezes come in from the east, dropping over the mountains that make up the Wasatch Front, cooling the numerous cities that line the interstate. Among them, the sprawling state capital, Salt Lake City, and Draper, the home of the Utah State Prison. In October 1984, high on cocaine, Ronnie Lee Gardner shot a Salt Lake City bartender named Melvin Otterstrom, in the face. Ronnie had gone into the Cheers Tavern, intending to rob the place. Ronnie fled the Cheers Tavern that night, with less than $100. Two months before killing Melvin Otterstrom, 23-year-old Ronnie Lee Gardner was in Draper, serving out a sentence for robbery, but managed to escape. When Salt Lake City Police picked up the fugitive a few weeks later and returned him back to the penitentiary, Ronnie found himself facing numerous felony charges, with the possibility of a life sentence, even possibly the death penalty for killing Otterstrom. Ronnie had always resisted efforts by others to control him, so the idea of him being confined for the rest of his days filled him with anguish. The only opportunity he had to smell the fresh summer air came whenever he went out to the yard. But Ronnie, who suffered from antisocial personality disorder, was often uproarious and confrontational. A tough guy with a temper, an escape risk, and he spent the bulk of his time inside Utah State Prison under the close supervision of correctional officers. For Ronnie, this was an unacceptable situation. A fourth-grade dropout, he had sought to live as freely as possible all his life, which for him meant having quick access to street drugs like heroin and cocaine that he purchased with the money he got from burglarizing homes and robbing businesses. During his time in prison, he learned a lot about how to escape. He even managed once to get out for several weeks. And another time, he scaled one of the fences around the prison before guards brought him back in. He understood that if he could get himself off of and perhaps even far away from the prison grounds before attempting an escape, he'd have an easier time getting away for good. So in August 1984, Ronnie set out to trick his captors by pretending to have a severe illness. Using an emetic, he induced vomiting 
and threw up repeatedly. As staff in the prison infirmary could not make the vomiting stop, they sent Ronnie to meet with doctors at the University of Utah Health Science Center, 40 minutes away in Salt Lake City. A transportation officer named Don Leavitt transported Ronnie to the hospital and led the handcuffed convict to a room for treatment. It was there that Ronnie sprang, striking Leavitt so hard with his fists that the driver's face broke in 16 places. Ronnie proceeded to take Leavitt's gun, a 38 caliber pistol from its holster, and ran out to the hospital's parking lot, where he approached a medical student named Michael Lynch as he parked his motorcycle. Ronnie pushed the tip of the gun he had just stolen against Lynch's head and said, I don't want to kill you, but I have nothing to lose. The Salt Lake Tribune's Nate Carlisle explains that Ronnie then ordered Lynch to take him on his Yamaha to an apartment complex where he stole the student's clothes and tied him up with his own shoelaces. Ronnie, as noted earlier, was afflicted with antisocial personality disorder, the symptoms of which, according to the International Statistics Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, include an indifference to others' feelings, disdain for social norms, a low tolerance for frustration, and a low threshold for discharge of physical aggression. In addition, People with antisocial personality disorder often follow a sociopathic incapacity to experience guilt. Ronnie, however, did not have a conscience, which he revealed at times throughout his life, albeit erratically. A few days after the escape, a sense of remorse prompted him to write out a note that read, Sorry, here's the gun in the wallet taken from the guard at the hospital. I don't want to hurt no one else. I just want to be free. He wrapped the note up in a pair of socks with the stolen items and asked his older brother Randy to drop them off in a U.S. post box. For the next two and a half months over the fall of 1984, Ronnie continued to get high and commit crimes to support his drug habit. He spent time with friends and family too including two children he had had with his one-time girlfriend, Deborah. He also met up with a woman named Darcy, whose sister, Karma, was married to one of Ronnie's cousins. Darcy, also a drug addict, responded with interest when they started to discuss the idea of committing a robbery together. The pair decided to stick up Cheers Tavern in Salt Lake City on October 24, 1984. Arriving at closing time, Darcy stayed in the car as Ronnie entered the establishment. Behind the bar stood Melvin Otterstrom, a Salt Lake City local who earned a business administration degree from the University of Utah. Though Melvin supported his wife Kitty and their three-year-old son Jason as a comptroller at the Utah Paper Box Company, an alien relative had recently become dependent on expensive medical care, and to help with the bills, Melvin was working one night a week, tending bar at the tavern. Melvin was a physically fit guy, a National Guardsman, who trained with the Green Berets. Despite years of heavy drug use, Ronnie was in good shape as well. Medium height, medium weight, he still had his hair too. A red, curly heap resting over a battered face. Whether the two fought or not in cheers that night, Ronnie later claimed Melvin resisted when he demanded money from him, and a scuffle commenced. Melvin's cousin, Craig Watson, on the other hand, insisted there were no signs of a struggle. Ronnie just placed the gun against Melvin's face and blew his head off. Ronnie grabbed what he could from the evening's totals, which wasn't much. He gained less than $100, Watson recalled. 
then he scrambled out of the bar, and he and Darcy sped off. It was Melvin's wife, Kitty, who found her slain husband's body in the bar room. At some point over the next few weeks, somebody notified the police about Ronnie's connection to the crime and told them he could be found at a house belonging to one of his cousins. After the police showed up and took him in, Ronnie was charged with a multiple of felonies, including murder. Though Ronnie was now in more trouble than ever before, he began to contemplate his next getaway. He felt at this point in his life, he had just two choices before him. One was escape, and the other was suicide. But if Ronnie wanted to escape for good, he again had to get some geographical space between himself and the Utah State Prison. An opportunity of this sort emerged in the spring of 1985, six months after Otterstrom's murder. Though Darcy McCoy, who'd driven Ronnie away from Cheers Tavern that night, agreed to testify against him in return for immunity from prosecution, Darcy's sister, Karma Hainsworth, had maintained her friendship with the killer. She kept in touch with him and Draper, and Ronnie passed on a series of letters to her, indicating what she could do to help him. He and the defense attorneys assigned to his case were scheduled to meet on April 22nd in Salt Lake City at a courthouse called the Metropolitan Hall of Justice. The nine-story structure built in 1960 and its floor design and security system similarly belonged to an earlier era. If Karma got him a gun and a change of clothes at the old Metro, he was certain he could shake the guards and regain his freedom. On the morning of April 2nd, Karma came through for her friend, and her loyalty led to an enormous tragedy at the courthouse. As Ronnie was led by guards into the old Metro's basement lobby, Karma ran to him, passed him a pistol, and dashed off. Ronnie bolted too, but a brief gun battle followed, and Ronnie was hit in the chest. He didn't falter though. He stumbled through the courthouse and into the archives room, where several people, including a prison officer and attorneys Michael Burdell and Robert Marcy were working. The lawyers, both members of a Utah-based religious sect called the Sumum, provided legal services pro bono to impoverished clients. They were in the archives room that morning, searching for information to assist a needy Vietnam veteran. Ronnie could not have known Burdell and Marcy were more interested in helping rather than controlling and punishing people like him. Ronnie came up, pressed his gun against Marcy's temple. Then, as confusion, rage, and pain surged through him, Ronnie fired the gun at Burdell, shooting him through the right eye. Then Ronnie shot at him one more time. The second shot was fatal. According to court documents, Ronnie proceeded to force the prison officer in the archives room to accompany him out to a stairwell leading to the second floor. As they crossed the lobby, a uniformed bailiff, Nick Kirk, came down the stairs to investigate the commotion. Ronnie shot him too, firing into the unarmed man's lower abdomen. The prison officer who'd been taken hostage fortunately got away to safety but then Ronnie coerced a vending machine serviceman to accompany him outside the building. As the two came outside, the serviceman broke free and dived through a teller's window inside the courtroom. In the parking lot, and surrounded by police, Ronnie threw down his gun and surrendered. Salt Lake Tribune reporter Nat Carlisle clarifies that Ronnie actually dropped to his knees and fell face-first into the grass before crying out, 
Don't shoot me. I don't have a gun. From his cell on Utah's death row, Ronnie would later argue that he was in shock when he killed Burdell, a result of the bullet wound in his chest. Ronnie's defense attorneys in 1985 negotiated a second-degree murder conviction for the death of Melvin Otterstrom, earning Ronnie a five-years-to-life sentence. While the trial for the fatal shooting of Michael Burdell ran through the second half of 1985, the jury for the Burdell trial deliberated for just three hours before returning with a guilty verdict, with a recommendation for the death penalty. Ronnie subsequently told court officials that the method of execution he preferred was the firing squad. Law enforcement and court officials had employed firing squads since Utah's earliest days as a U.S. territory. Historians have suggested that the use of firing squads, a rarity elsewhere in the country, arose in response to theological ideas circulated by Brigham Young, the president of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Young insisted that some crimes were so offensive in particular, apostasy, adultery, and murder, that Jesus by himself was unable to pardon. To have their sins absolved, apostates, adulterers, and murderers had to be killed, and killed in such a way that blood spilled. Brigham Young declared, There are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness in this world or in that which is to come, and if they had their eyes open to see their true condition, they would be perfectly willing to have their blood spilt upon the ground, that the smoke thereof might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins. This belief that divine forgiveness at times necessitated violent death came to be known as blood atonement. Though the concept has since been repudiated by the modern Mormon church, Ronnie gave it some credence. Karma, we should note, was given an eight-year sentence for her role in the Cheers Tavern disaster. Ronnie and his guns not only robbed the world of some good people, they also diminished the joy of life from their family members and friends. Michael Burdell, at the time of his death, was engaged to a woman named Susan New. His laugh was so infectious, she told the Desert News. When he laughed, there was no way I couldn't laugh. He was so willing to lighten my day. He always wanted to give more than he received. The slain attorney's father, Joseph Burdell, felt the killing of his son was a loss for everyone. He was just a great person to be around. Money never did mean much to him. His goal in life was just to help people out. Melvin Otterstrom was adored too, and his death cast a long and sorrow shadow. His sister Carolyn said, He made everything alright. If Melvin were around, everything would be fine. Likewise, his niece Jenny lamented, he was the glue in our family. Melvin was security and safety to us, and when he was gone it was, now what? Nick Kirk, the unarmed bailiff Ronnie wounded, lived another 11 years following the attack in the courthouse, but he was never really happy again. The bullet that pierced his pelvis tore apart his bowels and his intestines preventing him from pursuing the activities he enjoyed with his large family, like camping, fishing, and golf. His wife, Veldine Kirk, said he was in constant pain. It just took his life away. Ronnie's conscience, as inconsistent as it was, revealed itself again decades later when he told court officials that he understood what he'd done to his victims and their families was deplorable. I didn't have to kill anybody, he said. 
No one done anything to deserve what happened. For much of his time on death row, however, he was far from a model prisoner. In 1987, for example, he broke through a glass pane in the prison's visiting room to have sex with a woman who'd come to see him. As fellow inmates cheered and guards watched on in confusion, fearing their actions would lead to the woman's death. In 1994, Ronnie attacked another inmate, Richard Fats Thomas, who'd boasted about being a police informant. Ronnie was drunk on liquor he'd made in his cell when he attacked Fats with a shank, fashioned from a pair of eyeglasses. Allegedly, Ronnie thought it was funny he was unable to kill Thomas, who was, he said, so fat I think I was just stabbing fat. I was stabbing all the way up to the hilt, but I don't think I got through the fat. Yet as poorly as Ronnie conducted himself before and after he got himself on death row, we can still find points in his life, especially during his childhood, where several awful things happened. Factors beyond his control that in all likelihood influenced the formation of his dysfunctional and dangerous personality. Ronnie Lee Gardner was born in Salt Lake City on January 16, 1961 the seventh child of Ruth and Dan Gardner. An alcoholic, Ruth drank when she was pregnant with Ronnie. She never wanted the child, and instead of staying home and taking care of him and his siblings, she often went out to dance clubs. Dan Gardner had a drinking problem too, and he would beat the children, singling out Ronnie in particular because he suspected the boy was not actually his son. Dan eventually left the family in 1963, when Ronnie was only a year and a half old. Ruth, nonetheless, continued to go out, leaving Ronnie in the care of his siblings. Perhaps due to the young age of his babysitters, or perhaps an early expression of their longing for freedom, Ronnie got out of the family home one night, when he was only two years old. A psychologist who became acquainted with Ronnie during his final years, Craig Haney, explained to the Utah Board of Pardons and Parole that the malnourished, hungry little boy was picked up walking around only in a diaper. A failure to care petition was eventually filed against Ruth by the state, yet she was allowed to keep her son. Ronnie's childhood grew even more difficult in March 1965, when a case of meningitis put him in the hospital. The Mayo Clinic explains that meningitis produces an inflammation in the membrane surrounding the brain and spinal cord, and if not treated early, causes lasting cognitive problems, such as brain damage and learning disabilities. Ronnie's case of meningitis, it seems, wasn't treated early. Two years later, when he was just six, Ronnie learned from his siblings how to huff gas and sniff glue, which not only hurt his brain further, but led him on to a lifelong problem with drugs. Ronnie revealed that around the age of five, one of his sisters sexually abused him as well. He would claim that one of his older brothers molested him too. Ronnie's brain damage prevented him from learning to read and write normally and he was placed in special education classes. One of his brothers explained to court officials he couldn't learn, or he felt he couldn't learn, or he wasn't as smart as the other kids. He would get made fun of because he was in remedial classes, and he got into a lot of fights over that. While other kids did their homework and played sports, Ronnie committed crimes and did drugs. He would steal from stores, break into cars, and smoke pot. His mother, who had remarried at this point, was largely indifferent to Ronnie's self-destructive tendencies. Her new husband, Bill Lucas, was a criminal. Lucas had Ronnie and his brother Randy look out for cops when he broke into houses throughout Utah and Wyoming. Lucas would crack open gas meters too, 
and fill mason jars with mercury from the machines that he sold to crooked buyers. Ronnie would play with the mercury, rolling it between his hands. Notably, exposure to mercury can also injure the brain. Bill Lucas wound up in the Wyoming State Penitentiary in 1968, leaving Ruth alone again with her children. Ronnie's behavior grew even worse. With his brother Randy, he stole a pair of boots, and the two boys were sent to the juvenile detention center. When Dan Gardner found out, he came to the facility and got Randy out, and he left Ronnie there, snubbing the boy, apparently because he didn't recognize him as his son. Ruth liked to drape a leather belt around her neck as a warning to her children to behave, but her efforts to discipline with Ronnie never worked. Her inability to manage the boy eventually prompted her to send him at the age of 11 to the Utah State Hospital an hour south of Provo. The psychologist Craig Haney explains that Ruth and Dan Gardner had essentially given up on their son. They put him in a mental hospital and he didn't have a mental illness. It was a terrifying place. There were children who were psychotic, children who exhibited bizarre behavior. Ronnie stayed at the hospital for 18 months, and once he got out, he explained a bewildering sense of alienation. Hanley noted that he no longer felt comfortable at home. He didn't feel comfortable in institutions either. He felt like he had no place in the world. Ronnie agreed recalling a 1999 deposition. I just don't like to be confined. I would stay out for two to three days at a time, maybe weeks at a time, because I never felt that I fit in. So it was easy for me to go live on the streets. Unable to hold a job, young Ronnie committed crimes to support himself, mugging people and holding up stores. He was well known by police and soon wound up at the Utah State Industrial School a jail for kids in Ogden, just north of Salt Lake City. At the industrial school, Ronnie continued to fight with his peers, also learning criminal techniques from the ones with whom he got along with. When he was 14, the state released him, but instead of staying permanently with his mother, he went to a foster home where his brother Randy lived. The person responsible for the two boys was Jack Statt, a sexual predator who molested them. Jack, however, was kinder to Ronnie than his own mother and father, and Ronnie, unable to understand the scale of his victimization, appreciated Jack. I thought life like that was normal. At the time, I was still dumb enough not to realize that it was a bad thing. Jack was a good man, and he tried to help us out. Ronnie stayed at Jack Stat's house just a few months. He continued to assault and rob people to buy meth and heroin, and Jack let him hide at his house from the cops. Ronnie always eventually got himself caught, and he returned on several occasions to the industrial school in Ogden. During these years, he had a teenage girlfriend named Deborah Bischoff. In 1977, the two had their first child, a daughter named Brady. In 1980, the couple had another child. They named him Dan. In total, Deborah and Randy were in a relationship for seven years. He was very nice, Deborah remembered, very caring. He never put me in the rough situations he was in throughout his life. He sheltered me from that stuff. The idea of having a stable family with Deborah appealed to Ronnie, 
but he was still a criminal, semi-literate, unable to work, and a robbery charge when he was 19 led to a felony conviction resulting in a stay at Utah State Prison, where he would ultimately live for the next three decades, and where he would finally die. Sumum, the faith that Michael Burdell and Robert Marcy both adhered to, promotes the idea of showing love and mercy to all people, even dangerous men like Ronnie Lee Gardner. In 1999, Marcy, at whom Ronnie had aimed his gun at in the Metropolitan Hall of Justice Records Room 15 years earlier, requested a visit at Utah State Prison to speak to Ronnie. The Sumum emphasizes the importance of philosophy in human development, and during this first visit and others to follow, Marcy proselytized, encouraging Ronnie to believe that although he had done a lot of wrong in his life, he could still help others if he had a better appreciation for philosophical notions about ethics, justice, art, and the like. Surprisingly, Ronnie found himself receptive to Marcy's ideas and responded favorably, in particular to the ideas of chivalry, gallantry, and heroism that Marcy introduced through the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Ronnie also began to take a series of psychological tests that functioned in a way like therapy, helping him better understand himself and the causes and conditions of his antisocial personality disorder. Ronnie later stated, I didn't want to change. I fought it for a long time, but I finally accepted it, he said. That's the good thing about change. You have to really look at the damage that was done. I'm embarrassed, and I am ashamed of it. I have changed, you know, and I've, it's not been something that just happened overnight. It wasn't a big religious experience that I've had. It was just time to grow up. Ronnie and his defense attorney named Andrew Parnes would argue during the later years before the courts that the changes in his personality were real and should be considered, along with the enormous amount of time that Ronnie had lived on Utah's death row as grounds for commutation of his death sentence. In addition, Parnes felt that the attorneys who had first defended Ronnie had not brought adequate attention to his terrible childhood and the impact of the disease, drugs, neglect, and mistreat had likely had on his young brain. But every appeal Barnes and Ronnie made for clemency was denied. As we noted earlier, in the fall of 1985, when the jury convicted Ronnie of first-degree murder for Michael Burdell's death in the old Metro, he requested death by firing squad. Since 1976, after a national moratorium on the death penalty in the United States was lifted, only one man had been shot to death by firing squad in Utah State Prison, Gary Gilmore. The subject of Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize-winning nonfiction novel, The Executioner's Song. Gilmore shared with Gary a contempt for authority and control. He had addiction problems and indifferent parents who made a minimal effort to lead him away from criminal behavior when he was young. Gilmore had opted for the firing squad because he wanted a quick, clean death. Ronnie felt the same. He was not the next man to die by firing squad in Utah. During Ronnie's long stay on death row, another person opted for this method. A child rapist murderer named John Albert Taylor. In contrast to Gilmore and Ronnie, elected death by firing squad to inconvenience the state, welcoming the international attention it brought on Utah as critics claimed firing squad executions were barbaric. Once it was evident no court in the U.S. would step up to spare Ronnie, Utah's correction department named June 18, 2010 as his execution date. 
a death room was made to be used at Utah State Prison, and a pair of viewing spaces covered by curtains for witnesses. The room's designers had fitted a black metal chair with restraints and flanked it with heavy sandbags to absorb ricocheting bullets. The chair faced a wall 25 feet across from the room that had a slit through it, which volunteer marksmen would aim their rifles. Sitting in a cell just 90 feet from the death room, Ronnie ate his last meal two nights before the scheduled execution. He feasted on lobster, steak, ice cream, and pie. Then, for what he claimed were spiritual reasons, he fasted over the next two days and read a thriller by novelist David Baldessini titled, with some irony, Divine Justice. Ronnie had a chance to see his daughter Brady during his last hours. She told reporters, We both cried. He told me he was sorry, and he was at peace. On the last night of Ronnie's death, Ronnie received counsel from a Mormon bishop in his cell. Having been told that he did not want them to witness his death, Ronnie's family members gathered outside the prison. They brought 24 balloons, one for every year Ronnie sat on death row. They then let them loose in the summer night. From a car radio blasted the Leonard Skinner song, Freebird. Inside the prison, conditions were quieter. Journalists took their seats behind one of the curtain viewing windows several minutes before the shooting was scheduled to commence. Members of the Otterstrom and Kirk family sat behind a second window that looked out onto the death room. A few minutes before midnight, guards led Ronnie from his cell. He wore a blue jumpsuit, his red hair long gone. Years of arthritis had caused his body to deteriorate, and he no longer looked like a threat. He sat on the chair, and the guards strapped him in. When he was asked if he had anything to say, he responded in two short sentences. I do not. No. A hood was drawn over his head and face, and a white 2 by 2 inch target was placed over his heart. The executioners preparing to shoot Ronnie were all volunteers. There were five of them, each a Utah police officer equipped with a 30 caliber rifle. Reporter Nick Allen explains, only four of the weapons were loaded with live rounds and one contained a wax bullet to retain some doubt over whether they fired a fatal shot. At 2.15 a.m., the curtains in the witness windows opened. A countdown began. The guns fired. Ronnie Lee Gardner was allowed two minutes to give his final thoughts, but when the warden asked if he wanted to make a statement, Gardner replied, I do not, no. I, along with eight other reporters, watched the execution from a media witness room. When the curtain opened, we saw Gardner strapped to a metal chair. He had a strap around his forehead, down his sides, around his chest, waist, and both ankles. He couldn't move his head, but he moved his eyes and looked around the room. The warden then fastened a black hood over Gardner's head. Gardner, who was wearing 
wearing a dark blue jumpsuit had a target Velcroed across his heart. He seemed calm, but he clenched his fists as if he were bracing for what was to come. Five anonymous marksmen, all but one with live rounds, were hidden behind a wall with gun ports. About 30 seconds after the warden left the execution chamber, there were two gunshots that came without warning. After the shooting, Gardner's fists remained clenched. Seconds later, his arms slowly moved up and down. I also saw Gardner rub his thumb and forefinger together, causing some of us to wonder whether he was still alive. We saw what appeared to be blood pooling around his waist. After a couple of minutes, the medical examiner walked into the chamber, checked Gardner's pulse and pupils. He lifted the hood just enough so that I could see Gardner's head was tilted back and slightly to the right. His mouth was open and his complexion had turned a ghostly white. After Gardner's body was removed, prison officials allowed us to go into the chamber, which smelled strongly of bleach. There were four bullet holes in the wood panel behind the chair. A worker from the Utah State Medical Examiner's Office gave 12.17 a.m. as the time of death. After nearly 25 years spent waiting to die, Ronnie was, perhaps, at peace. His execution seemed to bring some relief to his victims' families as well. Nick Kirk's wife, Veldine, attended the shooting, although her husband's death was never formally attributed to Ronnie's actions in the courthouse. She said, It was not as hard as I thought it would be. I didn't start to cry or anything. All I could think of was how Nick would be happy to know. Ronnie paid the price. She continued, I think we'll all start to heal now. I don't like to see anybody die, but I think he really deserved it. And I just feel so sorry for his family. I'm really sorry for his family. Randy Gardner, one of the people waiting outside the prison that night, who'd become a vehement critic of the death penalty in response to his brother's experience, nevertheless found some comfort in what happened. He saw that Ronnie, after a life of striving for freedom, from cruel parents, from figures of authority, from even his own self, had obtained his goal. Speaking for the members of his family who cared about Ronnie, Randy explained, We're just glad he's free. He's been locked up all his life, and now he's a free bird. Like the song said. The criticism Utah received in the mid-90s when child killer John Albert Taylor was executed by firing squad prompted legislatures to abolish the practice. But Ronnie having selected the firing squad option before the law changed, was considered exempt from the ban. These days, Utah again permits death by firing squad, but on new terms. The state can elect to shoot condemned prisoners if the warden at Utah State Prison cannot obtain the drugs needed to induce death through lethal injection. The only two other states in the U.S. that permit the use of firing squad are Oklahoma and Mississippi, and they adhere to the same criteria and protocol. No longer can a capital offender be sentenced to death, elect to die by firing squad. Thus, Ronnie Lee Gardner could in all likelihood be the last condemned person in American penal history who chose freely to die in this startling way, a possibility that might have given him a bit of satisfaction. And now I would like you to meet the researcher and writer of this episode. He started off as a listener and contacted us a while back asking if he could write an episode. Give me an introduction on you, about your background, and whatever you feel comfortable with. I'm Steve Armstrong, and I am a professor of English 
at Dixie State University in southwestern Utah. And 20 years ago, I lived in Baltimore. I was a, actually a cook. I was a line cook. And my friend was an attorney and he needed someone to help him deliver subpoenas as a process server. I needed some extra income and I would drive around my car at night knocking on doors and it was called delivering misery. That was a pretty tough job. I saw a lot of spooky stuff and once or twice had a gun poked at me and it was a kind of a richness of experience here that I wouldn't want to relive, but it got me very much interested in some of the conditions of crime in city environments. And I uh, went to graduate school after that experience and found that I was all charged with crime, 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 crime. And so I did my master's degree thesis, hard-boiled film noir type script. And then for my PhD dissertation, I wrote a novel, a crime novel. I published quite a bit about film noir and crime writers. One of the books I wrote about is uh, John Frankenheimer, who's best known perhaps for The Manchurian Candidate. I'd really like to know, why did you choose us to tell Ronnie's story? I have a little dog, high-energy dog, and, and we go out at night walking through desert hills where we, where we live. It gets kind of creepy out there sometimes. But the way that I keep my mind going is to listen to podcasts. I've just put in True Crime, and the first title that came up was Minds Madness podcast. I listen to your voice, and when you deliver, you have this sort of very serious, meticulously paced delivery, and you're talking about how you love serial and you have listened to all the podcasts. And I just, I just was like, man, this guy, this guy is intense. This sounds like it's a good show. And I started listening to it, and I was listening to all the shows that you and Beck put together, and I just, I loved it. But I, you know, it's, it's not. It's, it's like loving a, a tragic Shakespeare play. You don't love the tragedy, but the emotions that it makes you feel are just so intense. And, and so just picture, if you will, middle-aged guy walking around with a miniature schnauzer through desert hills, listening to these stories that you guys together. And, and I should add that I really appreciated the compassion that the show expresses, that it's Thank not you. a sensationalistic, it's not just sort of mucking around in people's horrible experiences to titillate audiences. And the stories that really pounded at me were the Teresa Allure uh, and you know, just the sadness of that and the brother. Then the scariest episode of all was the Levi King one where you guys had set it up and he goes out on the spree and the little girl is home in in the room. And you know that expression, driveway moments, that someone's listening to a story in the car and they, they keep the car running to hear the end of it. It was on one of these walks one night and I just sat down and listened to this episode and I said, man, that is the kind of storytelling that, that I would like to do. And so and I reached out to you guys and I plunged into it. What was it about Ronnie's story that captivated you as much to want to write an episode about it? So Ronnie Lee Gardner, when he was shot by the state of Utah back in, was it 2010? Uh, that was front page news every day. And I would have my coffee and just read about this guy. And to me, it seemed like at first, oh, it's a, a stunt thing. He's trying to get attention. Who gets shot by a, a firing squad anymore? But then, you know, this idea of blood atonement was coming out of the pages. And, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, Mormon. I'm Catholic. Yet I live in an environment that is predominantly shaped by doctrine of the, the Latter-day Saints Church. And, you know, it's kind of interesting in, in hearing that this man is in part opting to be executed by firing squad because it's some sort of way of achieving salvation despite doing horrible things. I was like, wow, this is just so different than anything I know. And I was absorbed when that happened. I got the green light from you about Ronnie and proceeded. One thing that I did was, because I'm a college professor, I have access to court case files. I went in there and I got all these things because Ronnie was in court a lot. And I also called his former attorney, Andrew Parnes, up in Idaho. And I was thinking, you know, try to get as many uh, outside voices and experts and, and reliable sources as possible. In quick fashion, I became kind of an expert on this topic. I have to thank you so much for doing the script for us. It was something different than any other script I've read before. We like the structure of this one so much, we're not going to bring in any interviews because it's just going to just be an intense story. And we'll have really, to, yeah, that's what, wow. that's, that's what we want to do it. Like back to kind of like the original, some of the, like the early yeah. five episodes. 
We're going to put some links in our show notes to Stephen's books so our listeners can check them out. And I really want to thank you again, Stephen. This was a very interesting story to read, and I'm really sure our listeners are going to enjoy it. Thanks again. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Creative Control. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Hi, I'm Vish Khanna, and I host Creative Control, a music and pop culture show on the Entertainment One podcast network for in-depth interviews with top-tier musicians, comedians, journalists, filmmakers, writers, and other cultural creators, plus the occasional wide-ranging audio documentary. Please listen to Creative Control every week. It's available via every podcast platform, and you can learn more about it via my website, V-I-S-H-K-H-A-N-N-A. Dot com, vishkana.com. That's Creative Control, the podcast. I'm Vish. Have a nice day. And Murder Mile. Hi, I'm Michael, host of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast which was nominated as one of the best British true crime podcasts of 2018 is based on my five-star rated guided walk and features more than 300 untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders all set within one square mile of London's West End. So if you love hearing about new cases for the first time old cases through a fresh pair of ears and classic cases with a twist. All researched using the original declassified police investigation files, written using first-hand accounts, and recorded using authentic sounds from the murder location itself, then Murder Mile is just for you. Download the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast on iTunes, Acast, or your favourite podcast platform every Thursday. Thank you for listening. And stay safe. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally... The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run